Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. You know, I love that, that last verse that Lee just read, verse 32, where Jesus says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, God celebrates when the dead come to life and when that which is lost is found. And speaking of lost things, don't you just love it when you lose something? Um, usually we don't. But you know, there are times, I was thinking about this, there are times that I love it when I lose something. Like if I lose unwanted weight. Right? Or when your child loses their first tooth. Or how about when you lose it? when Your emotions, you lose them at like a, a wedding. Or when a child is born. You just lose it. It's fun to lose it sometimes. But a lot of times, it's not so fun. Sometimes, a lot of times, losing something is undesirable. For example, when you lose a game, especially the one that you should have won, right? I should have always won the games that I played, right? That's, anyway, you lose a game. Secondly, or you lose your temper. Uh, or you lose valuable documents. Have you ever lost valuable documents that were in your purse or in your wallet? And then you have this anxiety coming up in you as you imagine the joy that's on the face of the thief as they're draining your bank account or they're setting up a new identity for you uh, with your social security number. Losing things can be difficult, can it? But I think the, the greatest losses that we experience is when we lose someone that we deeply care about. When we lose someone that we care for. And this is exactly what happens in the parable today. And today's parable is probably a close second when it comes to the popularity of this parable. This comes into a close second to the Good Samaritan. Because even if you don't know the full story and the full layout of, of the prodigal son, you've probably heard about a prodigal child coming home. And this, this is one of the most deared and loved parables in the Bible and it's so popular that sometimes we can think, oh, I've already heard that. It's, you know, it's about a son who comes home and everyone's rejoicing. And, it's, you know, I've already heard all this. There's not much more I could learn from it. And that's what I kind of thought as I was, before I studied it this week. And, um, for example, what's interesting is that I've always thought that the word prodigal meant wayward or lost. But that's not what the word prodigal means, right? We all know that, Right? Okay, good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> what it means is it's someone who spends resources foolishly or extravagantly. So that I w when I titled my message this week, I almost said the two prodigal sons, but actually the last one's stingy. He's not a prodigal. He doesn't do it extravagantly, foolishly. So that's just one thing that I learned. But there's a lot more in here that I hope that we can mine out this morning. And, you know, as we're getting into the text, as we've been saying week after week, when you're getting into a text, you need to understand the context of the text. The context, the who, the what, the why, the where. Who is Jesus speaking this parable to and why is he speaking it to them? 
And to find the context, we just go back up to the very top of the chapter in verse 1 and 2. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Here's another familiar passage or a familiar situation that's happening. Sinners are coming to hear Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's like they're saying, why is this man treating these sinners like people? Why is he treating them like there's hope for them? Doesn't he realize that he's defiling himself? He's ruining his reputation. He's defiling his reputation through association. And, you know, the truth about Jesus is, is that he's relatable. He's touchable. Now, he's God, but he came down and took on flesh and became relatable to man. He took on flesh and became man. And so he had the reputation. He did have the reputation of associating with those who were openly immoral sinners in society. He was friends of those who didn't hide it. And so he was tagged as, as being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He had the title, uh, a friend of sinners. You may have heard that. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And um, because of this reputation, some have argued in our day that the reason that sinners felt so comfortable around Jesus is because he would accept them for who they were and that he would not confront them, that he would just hang out with them and, and then it, it would make them feel comfortable. So we, we should never, you know, confront anybody. And, you know, Scripture uh, as I read Scripture, that's not the, the kind of Jesus that I see in the Scripture. Now, I, do, I would say that Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus is gentle, he's lowly, he's kind, he's calling sinners to himself. But I want you to see what Jesus says when it comes to sinners. And we've said this a, a million times in this church, but I'm going to read it one more time. It's Luke 5.32. He says this, I have not come to call the righteous... But sinners, it doesn't say to hang out. What does it say? To repentance. To, to, to read this in the total positive would say, I have come to call sinners to repentance. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about repentance later on in the message. But I just wanted to lay that out at the very beginning, that Jesus does call us to repent. And they were attracted to him. I don't think it was because he didn't call them to repentance. Jesus spoke truth but he spoke it in a way that those who heard it knew that he really cared about the lost. I think that that's what drew sinners who wanted to repent to Jesus because there were sinners that were appalled at Jesus just like they are today. And so the out-of-the-closet sinners, they were lost, but they sensed in this man, he speaks truth, but we're valuable to him. I think that that is what drew them to Jesus. And so... We need to understand that Jesus was drawn to the or the uh, was drawn to the open sinner, but he also loved the Pharisee and the religious leader. I think sometimes we can think that he didn't, but he did. These are the ones who who kept their sins hidden and locked away in the vault so that nobody could see it in the public. They were valuable to Jesus too, even though they are blind. And even though they're blindly asking, why is this man, why is he loving sinners? They're, they're so blind they don't realize that he is loving them with his correction and his call to, to repent and that they themselves are sinners. We've seen that over, over the past few weeks through the parables that Jesus is always 
trying to show us we're all the same. We all need a Savior. But he's, he's loving them and he's calling them to repentance. And, you know, to, in order to answer the question of why is he investing in sinners, Jesus, in our chapter, launches into three different parables back to back to back. The first one is found in verse 4, where he talks about the parable of the lost sheep. You know, this is one of the most beloved. You see pictures of Jesus carrying a sheep on his shoulder because it's the sheep that wandered off. And, and uh, the shepherd takes the initiative, the shepherd does. He takes the initiative, and he goes out, and he leaves the 99. He finds the sheep. What does he do? He puts it on his shoulder. He brings it home, and he celebrates with his neighbors. Why? Because lost sinners are valuable to God. That's the the point of that parable. The lost sinners are valuable to God. Secondly, in verse 8, there's the parable of the lost coin, of how a woman had 10 silver coins. She loses one. Have you ever lost money and you just can't find it? And she's like sweeping the house, lighting a, a, a candle. She can't find it. And then she, oh, I found it. All right, it's good. We're all good. And she's telling her neighbors, we're, we're good. Why? Why does Jesus tell this, this parable? Because, again, lost sinners are valuable to God. And then we come to the third parable, which is our parable today, the parable of the two lost sons. And in this parable, there's three main characters. There's the good and loving father. Who does he represent? God the Father, then you've got the, the, the younger son, the openly rebellious son who embodies the overtly immoral folks, those sinners that Jesus is hanging out with. That's who he represents. And then there's the elder brother living at home, but he's just as estranged from his father as the younger brother. He just doesn't realize it. And he symbolizes religious people who trust in themselves. And so... You know, from the beginning of this parable, Jesus, um, as he's illustrating the Father's pardoning love, he astonishes the audience that's listening to him uh, by what the younger brother requests. Let's look at verse 12 and see what he requests. Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, a first century Jew that, that heard this would have been appalled that this son was asking for his inheritance at this stage in life. Because much like today, fathers uh, would, would divide their estate among their children. Deuteronomy 21.17 said, however, that the oldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So in this case, if there, just to say that there were two sons, the oldest son would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would have gotten one-third. And this Request is an insult because basically, a lot of commentators have said this, that basically what this son is saying is, Father, I wish you were dead. Because you're actually, you're standing in the way of me getting what I really want. And it's not you. I want what you can give me. I want what you have. And and once again, Jesus masterfully, masterfully is illustrating what the heart of man looks like, lost man, man that doesn't want God. I mean, we want the blessings of God, don't we? We want good weather, we want good health, good jobs, happy families. We want good times, but we don't, when we are walking in the heart of an unbeliever, we don't want 
be accountable to God. We don't want God. And so this would have been the ultimate insult. You know, Dad, I want what you have, but, but I don't want you. Now, another thing I want to point out about this verse is that twice the word property is used. The first time is when the son says, Father, give me the share of property that is going to me. The Greek word here is usia, which means it's rightly translated as property or wealth. So I believe it's rightly translated there. But the second time it says, and he divided his property between him. Jesus uses a different word here. He uses the word bios, which means life. Um, this is where we get our word biology from. So we could translate this verse and say, and he divided his life between them. Now, Tim Keller, who he's one of the, the main sources that I, I relied on while I was studying this passage, he says that this parable is the most influential uh, parable in his life. It's, it's affected him so much. So there's a lot, of, a lot of resources out there that he's put out on this parable. But he says that, that we do not understand the relationship the people in the past had with their land. In this parable, the father would have had to sell off one-third of his land to give his son his part of the estate. And so what the son is asking for is he's asking that the father tear his life apart, to, pair, to tear apart his standing in the community because the people of that time uh, were tied to their land. Their identity was wrapped up in the land more than what we can relate to today. Now, I'm going to be real with you. Um, I've got kids, y'all know, and I love my kids. Uh, I got great kids. I mean, I, they're very uh, patient with me, and uh, I, they love me, you know. But if one of my kids came up to me and said, hey, Dad, um, how much longer do you think you're going to be around? Because I really like your truck. You know, I really like your Or I, I love the house. Uh, when, do, when can I have it? You know, three things if, if that happened. Number one, I would be sleeping with one eye open at night. Number two, I'd be rewriting our will. And number three, I would be heartbroken. I, I literally would be broken at the rejection of my, our, my child towards me because of how much I love our, our children. And I think that this is what the father must have been experiencing, the rejection of his son. Now, this must be how, to some degree, what the father feels towards us when he's rejected by mankind. But you know what, what the amazing thing is about this parable is that the father goes ahead and he grants what the, the son asks for. He doesn't kick him out of the house. He does what the, the son asks, and he gives him his inheritance early. Now look at verse 13. It says, Not many days later, the, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless or prodigal living. He, he takes everything he has that his, his father's given him, he tosses it in the back of the pickup, he drives off and rips out the rearview mirror because he doesn't want to ever look back or go back to where he's coming from. He got what he wanted, or at least he thinks he got what he wanted, and what he wanted did not include his father. And so this son's rebellion is, is easy to see, isn't it? It's, it's very open. It's, it's, it's out there. 
Um, he's clearly separated from his father. He is clearly uh, disrespectful to his father. And the way he's living is showing that. So this, this guy represents the prostitute. This guy represents the thief, the liar, the drunkard, that person in society that's very easy to see. This person is not walking with the Lord. This, this person is a, I'm going to put this in, is this quotations? Quotations. He's a sinner. Because he's taken what his father has given him and he's just lived recklessly with it. But not forever. Let's look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this famine is so severe, uh, because this, and because this man has, has sold, uh, blown everything with his riotous living, he has to do what is inconceivable in the mind of a Jew. He hires himself out to a pig farmer. And uh, pigs, to the Jew, those are the nasty, and they might be to you too, they're, they're the nastiest creatures on the face of of the earth. Um, Jewish rabbis are quoted as saying, Cursed be the man who would breed swine. So, this is a, a shameful and unthinkable type of, of employment that this man is taking. But that's how bad it is. That's, Jesus is wanting to make sure we understand this is, it's bad that he's willing to do this. Now, the closest thing I thought about this in our American culture, what would be something that would be similar to, to that? And I found a picture. Uh, that I think it illustrates to me what this would look like. Uh, it would be like a pack of sewer rats drinking milk, swimming in it, taking their bath in it, and then someone taking it out and pouring it into a cup and saying, here. Okay, now we're there. That's what the Jewish audience would have been feeling when they heard he has, it's horrible uh, for this guy. He is desperate. And the good thing is, he finally realizes it. Verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself. Your Bible may say when he came to his senses. Basically, he woke up. He realized what he had become. He realized what he used, where he used to be and now where he is. And so he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Now, I want to stop right here in, before we keep going on and ask a question. Right now, where this man is, in the state of this man, um, is he forgiven of what he has done? Um, is this man lost or is he found right, right now, um, before we move forward here? And, and the reason I'm asking that is because last week uh, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, we talked about forgiveness and unforgiveness. And I quoted John Piper, and I'm going I'm to read it again. He said, I am not sure that in the Bible the term forgiveness is ever applied to an unrepentant person. So there's a sense in which full forgiveness is only possible in response to repentance. So complete biblical forgiveness between God and man requires repentance. If we're going to be rec uh, forgiven by God, it requires something that's called repentance. And, and so I want to discuss 
what biblical repentance looks like for just a second here, what it looks like and what it, it does not look like. And, and so where, where we've stopped here in the parable with this man, um, this, this man has come face to face with his condition. He's come face to face with his sin. And he, he knows he's desperate. He knows that he's perishing. He knows that he's insulted his father, uh, that he's taken the life of his father in a sense, that he has squandered it. He knows that he's separated from his father. He knows all these things. He's sorrowful. But I want to point out that at this point in the parable, this man has not yet repented. Um, Because it's not enough to just understand what you've done. It's not enough to just feel bad about what you've done. And I want to show you that you can, uh, you can think maybe that you're right with God when you haven't fully repented. And here's what I want to look at 2 Corinthians 7 to kind of help us see why that is. This, this passage is 2 Corinthians because it was, it's in response to 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul had written to the Corinthian church. And in the first letter, there was a sinful relationship going on in the church, and the church was just proud about it. And Paul says, that is wrong. And he rebukes them, he corrects them, he says, that, is, that does not glorify God, and they repent. And Paul, in the second letter, that's what we're going to read here, this is what he says to them. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss for, uh, through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See that two types of of grief here? There's a worldly sorrow, and it's a a grief that acknowledges, it can acknowledge sin. Um, It can acknowledge that that you're separate, uh, desperate. It can acknowledge, man, I need a savior. And that's what the, the prodigal is experiencing up to this point in our parable. He is grieved. He's sorry for what he has done. But he could still go, you know, Dad, I was wrong. Could you please send me some more money? So, Because I don't like the consequences of what have just happened because of my sin. I'm, I'm sorrowful for what I did, but I still don't want to come home. I want to stay where I'm at. So if you could just bless me some more. Give me some more of your blessings. See, that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow that uh, does not lead to salvation. But there is a second type of grief, which is called godly sorrow. It, it's, it's a sorrow, um, it's a supernatural sorrow that, you, that we can't produce in and of ourselves. But it is, it's a sorrow when you realize that you've sinned against God and you're sorrowful to God and you want to be reconciled to God. It's that type of sorrow that you want to come home You want to come back to the God who created you, to the God who loves you. That's the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. So what does repentance look like? Well, we can look at verse 18 because this this young man fortunately does repent because of his sorrow. He says, I will arise. This sorrow is producing in him an action. I will arise and go to church. No. I'll clean up my act. No. I will go to my father. 
And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That when someone said against heaven, basically they're saying against God. And before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He understands to some degree the depth of his sin. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Biblical repentance. This is what biblical repentance is. It's a change of our mind that leads to a change of direction. Uh, in his confession, notice how the, the son has changed his mind, and it, and it causes him to get up and to change his direction of life. Um, he owns his sin, and listen, he also has faith. So it's repentance and faith. Now, what is his faith in? It's not in himself. He has faith that if he goes home, his father is going to be merciful to him and take him back. Now, at this point, he doesn't realize how merciful his father is going to be. I don't think we realize that at times. But he knows that his father is not going to reject him. So he has enough faith to get up and, and go forward. Ray Ortland says that the motive for repentance is not only sorrow for sin, but also a sense of the mercy of God in Christ. We have zero motivation to repent unless we see the mercy of God awaiting us. Not the slap of God, but the embrace of God. Repentance is not just turning from sin, not even that primarily. Repentance is primarily turning to God moment by moment because he has promised his mercy to the penitent. So the point I'm trying to make here is that, that true repentance is not sorrow because you got caught. It's not sorrow because you don't like the consequences of what your sin is bringing upon you. It's also not um, that desire to, to um, cause your conscience to be silenced because you're being tormented. And you just, you just want to feel better about yourself, so you're just trying to get it off your chest. That's not true repentance. True repentance involves a change of mind that leads a change of direction. It's when you come to a place in your life where you, your mind is changed because you've been doing things on your own and you realize, God, uh, I didn't think I needed you. But now I see I do. God, I didn't think that I needed a Savior, but now I do. And then you believe. I believe that if I come to you, You'll take me back. So I give up. I surrender. No excuses. I'm not going to say I sinned, but dot, dot, dot. I'm not going to try to say I wasn't that bad or make excuses. I totally give myself up. And in faith, I cast myself upon you, trusting that you will forgive me and receive me. And you know what? As I said before, this is a supernatural uh, repentance. And I don't trying to spiritualize it in a certain way, but we need to understand that God will give that to those who ask. So this morning, if you're, if you're sitting here and you're like, if I'm really truthful, I don't have that right now. I want to encourage you. God knows that. Confess. He says, ask and it will be given. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Ask for the gift of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And that's the kind of repentance that this wayward son has. Verse 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
You see what happens to the father? He's losing it. He's losing it. He can't contain himself because before the son can even finish saying what he wants to say, the father has already fully embraced him. He's dressed him. He's put on a ring on his finger. He's killed the fattened calf. And they're celebrating. Verse 24, he says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Cool and the gang is kicking in, right? Y'all don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? Okay, all right. <laughs> well, you know, most people, that's as far as this parable goes. We stop here because we say this is what the emphasis is, that God, that Jesus will receive sinners. But that's not really why Jesus was telling this story fully. Because if we remember, this story has two lost brothers, and it's really directed towards the last one. Remember, the Pharisees are the ones going, why are you hanging out with sinners? And he's answering that question. This is directed towards the religious people. And it's, you know, again, it's obvious that the younger brother was lost and alienated from the father. But because the older son is still living, living at home, it's difficult to see. Outwardly, he appears to be united with his father. He's, he appears to be obedient from the outside. And something as I was studying this passage that, I, uh, that um, I'd never really seen before, but it's interesting to me how the sin of the younger son reveals hearts. Um, it reveals the heart of the father, that he longs for sinners to repent. But this younger brother's sin also reveals the heart of those who are self-righteous, like this brother. You know, and that's what the sin of others can do to us. When you see someone that's sinning worse than you, how does your heart respond? And that's the heart of the, of the older brother is re revealed here, right? He's out in the field working, he comes home, and he hears music, there's dancing, and one of the servants comes out and says, hey, guess what? Your younger brother, your kid brother is home. And your dad is beside himself. He is so excited about this that he has done something that we don't ever do unless it's huge, like a wedding or a bar mitzvah. He has killed the fattened calf. And we are celebrating. You know, that's, when the heart of the older brother is exposed for who he really is. He appeared to be at home, but when he sees his brother has come home and how his father is responding to him, he loses it. Uh, he says in verse 28, it says, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. That's important. Take note of that. His father came out and entreated to him, but he answered his father, look. Now I'm going to stop there. Look. That word look is an insult to, because he should not be talking to his father like that. It, he should have said father, but he goes, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. He is so impressed with himself, isn't he? He is so blind that he really thinks he's done everything perfectly. 
God, I thank you that I am not like my younger brother. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You see what he's doing? He's saying, Father, you're evil and you're unappreciative of all that I've done for you. Isn't that what we do sometimes? When things don't go our way, or maybe you've lived right, and you may have lived right, and things just aren't going your way. You're, they're going the other way because you lived right. Verse 30 says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. Do you see that? Son. He didn't go, Look. All right, look. He says, he, He's still respectful to him. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours, and all that is mine is yours. Now, this may have triggered him. Yeah, exactly. You already gave him his third. Everything left is mine, and now you're giving what's mine to him. Verse 32, the father continues. It was, it was fitting to celebrate. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, right? For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, the question as I was looking at this, I'm like, well, how, how does this man repent? Um, how does this man change his mind? How does he change his direction? How does he return home when he appears to already be there? It appears that he's never left. Now, again, his body's there, but his heart's not, right? His heart is not truly with his father. His, his father doesn't have his heart any more than the father had the heart of the younger brother when he was lost. They both are lost in this parable. We've got to see that. And because this man, is the older brother, is doing good things, he doesn't realize that he's lost. And, and the danger, church, listen to me, the danger and the temptation for religious people like me and, the, and like many of you who are here who know the Word of God, who love the Word of God, who can quote the Word of God, and even that we can do good things, the danger is that we can do the right thing for the wrong reason. That's what's happening in, is being revealed in this parable. The question is, what's the difference between the Pharisees and those who are truly righteous? Because we are to do good works, aren't we? We are to serve the Lord. Again, Tim Keller talks about this, about what's the difference between a Pharisee and a true disciple of Jesus. He says, Pharisees repent when they do wrong. A Pharisee will repent when they do wrong, and they feel bad. A Christian or a, a true disciple of Jesus repents of what they do wrong, but also for the reasons they do right. What does that mean? Repent for the reasons that they do right. You can do it for the wrong reasons. You can live up, upright lives, holy lives, for the wrong motive. You can live that way because I want everyone to think I'm a certain way. But it's not to, to, because of out of gratitude for God. 
but it's to preserve who you are. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and it appears that the eldest son believes that his work, the way he has served his father, has merited his father's love. That he thinks that he's, he can control his father. If I do this, then the father is obligated to do this. That the father owes him. That's what he's saying in this, and as he's talking to him. He's like, Father, you owe me for what I have done. And then he sees how the father treats the penitent brother. And he's like, wait, you mean that your love isn't dependent upon what I do? Look, look at all I've done for you. I deserve that fattened calf. You've not even given me a goat, but I deserve the fattened calf, not him. And God's like, you know what? That's not how my love works. That's not how the love of God works. You cannot earn my love. Because it is given, it is a gift to be received freely to those who believe. And so this son's response proves that he does not know the love of his father. Otherwise, he would have loved the younger brother. He would have rejoiced, truly rejoiced with the younger brother. He would have loved that that which was lost is now found. What would it have looked like if he had been a good older brother? Well, I think um, it's not in the parable, but I'm going to daydream here. If he was a good elder brother, wouldn't he have gone out and looked for him? For the, at least for the sake of his father, who loved him. And when he found him, wouldn't he have implored him to come home and tried to convince him and when he did come home, wouldn't he have been happy and rejoicing? And wouldn't he have shared his inheritance with him if he was a good big brother, a good older brother? But, you know, the prodigal didn't have a good elder brother. But we do. We have the ultimate elder brother who left his home, who left his father, his name's Jesus. He took on flesh. He came for us. He sought for us when we were lost, the lost sheep. He found us. He put us on his shoulders. He put us on his shoulders when he took the sins of the world upon himself. And he was punished for us on the cross. And he brought us back to the Father. He brought us back into the fold. He cleansed us with his blood. He clothed us in his righteousness so that we who squandered our inheritance can share in his. We have the wonderful, loving older brother. And it's important for us, and, and I want to just end on this, because most of us, sometimes we probably can relate to the younger brother, but most of us are, can relate to the elder brother. I want to, I want to point out here that both sons were lost and that the father went out to both of them. Did you notice that in the parable? He went out to the younger son. He went out to the older son. Because why? Because lost religious people are just as important to God as those who are openly rebellious. You don't have to go out and do something rebellious for God to love you anymore. God's love can transform the heart of lost or proud religious people. And he has. 
He has done that in our lives, hasn't he? Those of us who are in Christ. But there's times that we can, like a sheep, we can kind of like wander a little bit and we need to be brought back and reminded of how God loves us. Last thing that I was thinking about, I wonder if that older brother repented. Um, Jesus obviously doesn't say, um, and, and I don't know if he did, but if he had repented and if he had gone inside and been reconciled to the father and, and to the son, I guarantee you they would have killed another fattened calf, wouldn't they? And that celebration would have gone on into the week because God celebrates when the dead come to life and the lost are found. Whether you're good or you're bad. Amen? He who has ears to hear, let him hear.